have your Bible with you, let me invite you to take it and find your place in the book of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at this passage that records the events uh, associated with Pentecost, and what happens in this chapter, Acts chapter 2, is very important because it signals the arrival of God's Spirit who came to indwell believers. And it's also important because it means that the power we need for the Christian life has been supplied through the Holy Spirit who came. And He came to empower us to live the Christian life through us. Uh, He came to empower our witness. Jesus said specifically in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 uh, that the Spirit would come to empower His disciples for the purpose of being witnesses, witnesses among the nations of Christ. And so it's the Spirit then who empowers our work, our witness, our worship as believers. And yet what happened on the day of Pentecost is also important because it it sort of points to the birth of the church. Uh, The church was born at Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, as Peter finishes his sermon on the day of Pentecost, The Bible says that 3,000 people believe his message. They believe the gospel as it's preached, and they personally come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And so if the first part of chapter 2 presents us with the very first Christian sermon, the end of Acts chapter 2 presents us with a picture of the very first Christian fellowship. Uh, What is it that was true of the church? What did they give themselves to? Those that came to faith in Jesus, uh, what set them apart? What set the church apart from any other gathering of people? Well, I want to show you in Acts chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible there, I want you to look at verse number 40. Let's stand as we read the Word of God together. Acts chapter 2, verse number 40. The Bible says that with many other words, Peter bore witness And he continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And that word crooked there is an interesting word. Uh, The Greek word that's used there is the same word we get the word scoliosis from. You know what scoliosis is? The curvature of the spine, crooked spine. Well, that's the same word that's used here uh, to speak of uh, a lost world. And Peter's saying, be saved. Don't get wrapped up in living your life the same way that the world lives its life. Be saved from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the group of of believers had been 120. Now they're 3,120. And verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God 
and having favor with all the people. Now watch this. The Bible says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As these believers were giving themselves to obedience to Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel, uh, living a set-apart life as believers, there was a remarkable attractiveness uh, that set them apart. And people were drawn to fellowship. And as they were sharing the gospel, as they were telling the good news, the Bible says that the Lord added to the church day by day those who were being saved. And so the picture then that we have of the early church here at the end of Acts chapter 2 is a wonderful picture indeed. And I want to preach from this subject this morning, marks of a spirit-filled fellowship. The church here in the book of Acts is a spirit-filled fellowship. The church is the temple of the living God in whom God dwells. And so, Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word today in our hearts and lives. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what is it exactly that makes for a great church? A lot of people ask that question, and they come up with a lot of different answers. Uh, for some, a great church is that which has great music or great preaching. A great church is that which has a dynamic children's ministry or an engaging student ministry. Even for others, a great church is that which emphasizes social action and community involvement. Or a great church is known by its great state-of-the-art facilities. And, you know, all of these have their time and place. You know, they've got their proper place. But none of these all by themselves make for a great church. If you really want to know what makes for a great church, then you really need to look no further than these characteristics that are described of the church, mentioned of the church, here in the second chapter of Acts. Now, I do think that I need to be quick to point out that the early church was not perfect. I can't help but think that sometimes in our minds, in our hearts, we go back in our imagination to that first century world, and we think about the early church, and we think, oh, you know, the early church was perfect. This was the golden era of the church, and things kind of went downhill from there. Well, listen, the early church, as simple as it was, as powerful as it was, the early church was not a perfect church. I mean, you're not, you're, within four chapters, you're going to find out that the early church becomes divided. Okay, they, they become divided over the issue of ministry to widows, and deacons then are necessary to be uh, helpful uh, to help deal with some things so the church can move on, so the apostles can continue to give themselves to the preaching of the word and prayer. So the early church is not a perfect church. The only perfect church is the church that's with Jesus now in heaven. Though it's not perfect, the church in Acts is powerful, and it's remarkably simple. And it's a church in process, as are we. You know, the thing is, we've been saved, but the Bible also says that we're in the process of being sanctified. It simply means that the Spirit of God is working on us to mold us, shape us, conform us more and more into Christ's image. And so the picture then that we're presented here of the church at its birth really ought to be one that we keep constantly coming back to as we evaluate our own fellowship and our own lives. You think about all that the church didn't have 
things that we think are so important that are essentials for ministry. They didn't have buildings or facilities. Uh, they didn't have a line item budget. Uh, they didn't have um, a marketing strategy and all this kind of thing. What they did have, though, was powerful, and it was beautiful. And it's the power of God at work in their hearts and lives. And so the church is a spirit-filled fellowship that's made up of men and women whose lives have been transformed by the power of Almighty God. And what's true of the church, uh, what's descriptive of the church here in this passage, it's not something that can be explained merely in human terms. But rather, this is the power of God on display. It's the life of God that's being lived out through the fellowship of believers. And so from this passage, I want to show you what I'm calling marks, at least four marks of a spirit-filled fellowship. So number one, notice with me the first mark, how the church is established. Gospel establishment or gospel foundation, that's the first mark of this spirit-filled fellowship in the book of Acts. You look at verse 40, Luke is telling us that with many other words, Peter bore witness, and he continued to exhort the people. That word exhort there means to come alongside of, parakaleo. Interestingly enough, it's the same word that's used to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. Uh, the one who comes alongside of us to empower us, to exhort, to encourage, to help, to strengthen. That's what Peter's doing. He's coming alongside this crowd of people at Pentecost, and he's urging them to come to faith in Jesus. You remember his message that he preached, the components of his sermon. Uh, he had connected what had happened at Pentecost and the arrival of the Spirit. He connected that with Old Testament prophecy. And then he declared Jesus to be crucified, buried, raised to life again, ascended in he to heaven, and he's given his spirit who's now come to indwell believers. And so after preaching all of this, Peter then gives the hearers an opportunity to respond in faith to the message of the gospel. Uh, he urges them to believe the message. Which, by the way, listen, as we share our faith, as we have conversations with people and we point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we share the gospel, we've not fully declared the truth of Christ until we've called upon people to turn from their sin and believe the message. But people have got to be brought to the point of decision. And so there's a sense of urgency in Peter's appeal. And verse 41 says that 3,000 people, they, they get saved, and they're baptized and added to the church. Now, could you imagine attending that baptism service? 3,000 people who were, who were dunked uh, all in one day. What an awesome time. What a remarkable testimony of the saving grace of God. Well, that's what happens. And the church is established in the gospel. In fact, when you consider after one sermon... The church grew from 120 to 3,120. That's 2,500% growth after one sermon. <laughs> Put that in perspective. Let's say we average 1,100 worshipers on a Sunday here. If we grew from 1,100, we grew 2,500% uh, from one Sunday to the next. That'd be over 20, um, 27,500 people that'd be here next week. It'd be gridlock on this side of High Point. 
Cars would be lined up down uh, Westchester and Rotary and Phillips and everywhere. That's a quarter of the population of our city, for crying out loud. So I I think that kind of helps put things in perspective with how remarkable this was on the day of Pentecost that 3,000 people repent of their sins, they believe the message of the gospel, they're baptized, and they're added to the church. You know, Jesus, it's Jesus doing what he said he was going to do. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. It's the first time the word church is even used in the New Testament. Called out ones, ecclesia, that's what the church is. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. If you remember in that passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had been having a conversation with his disciples. And he asked them, he said, listen, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist who's come back to life. Other people say that you're Elijah. Uh, Even still, some say that you're the prophet Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus gets personal, and he asks his disciples this question. He said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And the you there in that verse is plural. He's saying, who do y'all say that I, the Son of Man, am? And you know who it was that spoke up? Peter, never the one to be shy, Peter. Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus says this. He says, I say to you, you were Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, that doesn't mean that the church is built upon Peter, the man. Here's what Jesus was saying there. Uh, He's saying, you are Peter, Petros. It means little stone. That's what Petros means. But then he says, but on this rock, and he uses the word Petra. On this rock, uh, this massive rock, this massive boulder, Petra, I will build my church. What's Jesus talking about? He's not saying the church is built upon Petros, little stone Peter. No, the church is built upon this massive uh, rock, Jesus Christ himself. It's it's the declaration that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God, the only one who can save us from our sins, the only one who is hope for the world. Salvation is found in no other but Jesus. This is the confession of the church. That word Petra, though, was an interesting word. I even read where in classical Greek, In classical Greek, that same word uh, was used to sort of describe um, a conglomerate type of rock. You know what? You remember in geology? Y'all go back in your minds with me to geology class for just a second. If you didn't sleep through it, okay? You remember what types of rock? You had igneous rock, which was sort of like volcanic rock. Uh, And then you had, um, um, that was the day I slept, uh, metamorphic rock, I think it was. Is that right? All right. And then you had... Sediment, sedimentary rock? Well, conglomerate rock was sort of a subclass of sedimentary rock, which is sort of rock, pieces of rock that's kind of fused together, uh, that's sort of cemented together. That word petra was used to describe that type of rock in, in classical Greek literature. Now think about that. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what the church is? 
In fact, Peter himself is going to say the same thing later on. Uh, he says, you yourselves, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, he says, you are living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that we're no longer strangers, but now we're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so the point is that the church is established upon the bedrock of Jesus Christ. The church has been established in the gospel, founded upon Christ whom Peter and the apostles preached as being crucified, buried, risen to life. And this is what is, is happening here in Acts chapter 2 as the church is established upon the gospel. So the first mark then of a spirit-filled fellowship is that it will be established in the gospel. But then notice number two. There's a second mark of this spirit-filled fellowship, and it involved edification, necessary edification. You look at what the Bible says in verse 42, it says that they, meaning the 3,000 who came to faith, they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So you've got thousands who've now come to faith, you've got thousands of baby Christians, they needed to be edified, didn't they? They needed to be built up. They needed to be brought to a place of spiritual maturity. And so conversion then is only the beginning. Verse 42 says they devote themselves. There's a wonderful sense of unity that's being conveyed in these verses. Though these believers came from a variety of places, that they there means they're all now together in one body. And this is something that the Spirit of God has done. I want you to pay attention to that word devoted in verse 42. Uh, Luke uses that word, and it's, it's an imperfect tense verb. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, it, it sort of emphasizes habitual activity. It's the idea of them continually devoting themselves to something. They continually devoted themselves to something that, that formerly they had not been devoted to. It means that there's been a change of lifestyle. It means that there's been a change of life, a change of loves. They're now set apart by devotion to some things. It's not a temporary devotion. It's not a short-lived devotion. They're continually devoting themselves to this new life, to this message, this gospel message. And so what are they devoted to? Well, there are at least four things that they're now devoted to. The first thing is the apostles' teaching. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, they needed edification, and where did that come from? It came through the instruction from the Word. Apostolic doctrine, knowledge of the truth. This is foundational to spiritual growth. It's absolutely essential to the health of the body. Peter would say this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, like newborn infants... Long for the sincere spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into salvation. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul said this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed to the renewing of your mind. Don't let the world around you press you into its mold. Instead, as a believer, let God transform you. Be transformed through the renewal of your mind. And how is it that we're transformed? It's when the truth of God's word comes to bear upon our mind and our conscience. And there's transformation that takes place in the mind and the heart and the will. And all of this is taking place now in the lives of these believers. So they're devoted to uh, doctrine. And then they become habitually devoted to the fellowship. Notice the definite articles there in verse number 42. They're not devoted to some squishy idea of relationship. No, they're habitually devoted to the fellowship. They've been brought into the fellowship, a tangible expression of the body of Christ, the local church, and they're devoted to that local church. People say, well, can you be a Christian and, and not go to church? Yeah, but you can't be an obedient one. You can't be a growing one. You can't be one that's experiencing vibrancy in your faith if you're disconnected from the fellowship. See, the thing is, these believers have now been saved, and they're devoted to the doctrine of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, which, by the way, we now have that contained in 27 books in the New Testament. So they're devoted to the Scriptures, and they're devoted to the fellowship, the body, the local expression of the body. They've been brought into family. That word fellowship is an interesting word. It's the word koinonia. Now, when we think of fellowship, we think of something other than body life. Most of the time, we think of eating. We're Baptists. <laughs> we think we can't have fellowship without a chicken leg in our hand or coffee and donuts in our hand and that kind of thing, which I'm all for, by the way. But this kind of fellowship, koinonia, it, it means common life. It means participation in a shared life. It's the life of God that's come to take up residence within these believers. That's what's brought them into the fellowship. That's what serves as the basis of their unity as believers. You know, think about this. Uh, to illustrate fellowship, think about having a bag of marbles in one hand and a bag of grapes in the other. A lot of people want to approach fellowship like it's some kind of a bag of marbles. You know, you've got that bag of marbles, and you can shake those marbles, and those marbles may sort of clatter. They clatter, but they don't really connect. They mix, but they don't really mingle. That's not koinonia. New Testament fellowship, it's more like a bag of grapes. Uh, you shake the bag around, and guess what it begins to do? It begins to, to leak some juice. It begins to bleed, and one grape sort of bleeds into the next because those grapes uh, shared in a common nature. They shared in a common life source. They shared in the vine. That's what fellowship is like or ought to be like in the New Testament church. Uh, the church is not merely a group of loosely connected individuals, but instead the church is a body of believers who share in a common life. When one of us hurts, all of us should hurt. When one of us rejoices, all of us should rejoice. This is the family of faith. And so the point then is that a Christian is someone whose life is set apart by devotion to the Lord Jesus, 
and devotion to the fellowship, to the local church. And let me just say this, one of the issues that's led to ineffectiveness and lack of power in the church of our day is lack of devotion to the fellowship among those of us who make it up. We've reduced church to nothing more than a Sunday morning event that we attend. We blow in here, we breeze out, we expect a blessing within an hour, but we don't want to really invest ourselves and get connected. Folks, New Testament fellowship is belonging to a body of believers. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. I was reading some statistics this week by Pew Research. Pew Research put out a report. I think it was in October of this last year. But it was the state of Christianity in America. And they had a lot of stuff that was in that report. But one of the things in the report, um, it, was, it was sort of tracking attendance, church attendance, and how attendance is not what it used to be. And not only are there less people attending church, but of the people who do attend church, the people who do are attending less. And, and they had sort of like these graphs to kind of illustrate how there had been a decline in attendance in the last decade or so. And people say, well, what's the reason for a lot of that? Well, we now live in a time where, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we can fill our schedules with. We can be devoted to so many different things. And you can catch a podcast driving down the road of your favorite preacher You can download to your iTunes the latest worship album and that kind of thing. A lot of people just said, you know, I'm going to attend church less, but I'm going to have church wherever I'm at. Let me ask you this question. When are you going to bleed into the life of someone else and allow them to bleed into your life? Because you can't do that in your car going down the road, podcasting every sermon and, you know, every preacher you like and every iTunes worship album you like and that kind of thing. Neither can that kind of thing really happen on Facebook, which has become a substitution for real community. I, listen, man, I'm stirring it up this morning, I know, but I'm just going to keep stirring, okay? I love the fact that we can make our sermons and our worship services online for those who are on the go or, or if you're at home sick, you know, if you're out of town or if you have to work and your schedule's different. I love the fact that technology affords that, that opportunity. I mean, isn't that a wonderful thing? But, you know, never should it become a substitute for regular involvement in the family of faith. Regular involvement. You see, what's happening here in Acts chapter 2 is a new rhythm of life that sets these believers apart. Their lives now are characterized by habitual devotion to the Word, habitual devotion to the fellowship, And then notice their lives are distinguished by habitual devotion to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Worship. Communion. Gathering around the Lord's table. Praying for one another in specific ways. So this is a lifestyle of worship then that's being cultivated in the lives of these new believers. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Someone has said that worship is the furnace of the spiritual life. How's your worship been lately? It's the celebration of God for who he is and what he's done and what we're trusting him to do in our lives. And and the real issue in worship, it's not so much what we get out of it, but what God gets out of it. It's for the glory of God, for the fame of God's name. 
And listen, the Holy Spirit will absolutely ignite your spiritual life when worship becomes not just an event, but a way of life. And that's what's uh, said of the church here in the book of Acts. They had a worshiping lifestyle. So this is how they're then being edified through these new rhythms of life. And their life is remarkably different than it was before this moment. Now that they've got saved, everything's been changed. They've been forgiven of their sins. The life of God has moved into them. Now they want to obey and they want to be involved in the family of faith. And so this is how the church is edified. Do you know that these are still the regular means by which God has ordained that you and I be edified and built up in our faith? Regular instruction under the word of God, week in and week out. There ought to be a beautiful monotony about what we do as the church. A beautiful monotony. You say it seems like the same thing every week. Well, it ought to. It ought to. It ought to. Because week in and week out, we gather together for worship, to sing, to be under the word, to get together in small groups and Sunday school classes where you can get into relationship and you can find out what's going on in people's lives. Not so that you can gossip about it so that you can be involved and so that you can be brothers and sisters in the faith. And so there ought to be this beautiful monotony then that just characterizes this spirit-filled fellowship. The world around us is always looking for something latest and greatest and new and something full of pizzazz and pop. But folks, let me tell you, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the best thing going. It's the body of Christ, the fellowship of the redeemed in whom the Spirit has come to live. So there's gospel establishment, there's necessary edification. The third mark of this spirit-filled fellowship involves their common experience. These new practices that they gave themselves to, this habitual devotion that was characteristic of their life, it led to a common experience. Because verse 43 says that awe came upon every soul. In other words, this spirit-produced wonder and awe was the direct result of what God was producing in their lives as they were devoting themselves to the Word and to fellowship, to worship, and to prayer, and to outreach. And this experience involved a few things. It involved curiosity to begin with. Awe came upon every soul. The word translated as awe there is the word fear. Phobos, uh, phobos, the word we get phobia from like arachnophobia, <laughs> sphere of sp spiders, <laughs> snakeophobia, serpentophobia, all that, phobia, fear, but it's not the kind of terror that causes someone to sort of um, run away. This is the type of fear that's awestruck wonder. It means that they're attracted to this new fellowship. There's something different. There's something remarkable about, uh, remarkable about this fellowship. People were drawn to it because it was so different from anything that they had seen anywhere else. It's a supernatural thing that's produced by the Spirit of God. And so there was awe within the body itself, but then there was awe among the surrounding society. This church is going to affect society in a profound way. Even the city becomes struck with awe at what was happening. And all of Jerusalem, they're not at all over programs or personalities or performances, but they're in awe at the supernatural dynamic of the church's life. 
Because it became evident that there was more than mere human effort at work here. This is the work of God in the lives of these people. So there was curiosity, and then there was unity. Their common experience involved unity. And that unity was not something that was being produced by them, but rather it was something that was supernaturally produced by the Spirit in them. You know, the Bible says that they had everything in common. Verse 44, they were together. It's a supernatural togetherness that's being produced by the Holy Spirit. It's community or common unity. It doesn't mean that they all forfeited their own uniqueness. It doesn't even mean that they forfeited their own preference and personalities and that kind of thing. It means that they didn't make their own individual preferences the basis of their unity. What they liked by way of preference was not what united them together. It was the gospel. It was the common life of God that brought them together. They were brothers and sisters, and the gospel served as the basis of their commonality. It was not their race. It was not their ethnicity. It was not their age. It was not their gender. It was Jesus Christ and the gospel and the Holy Spirit had come to move in. This is what united them together and made them one. It's the exact same thing that Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, where he says, in Jesus Christ, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's this idea that out of many, we've been made one in Christ, and it's a supernatural unity that only the Spirit of the living God can produce. You know, the world outside of us is constantly trying to get together. People got to come together. But you know something? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be the one place on earth where people can look and say, you know what? There's something supernatural about that group of people because they're so different, and yet they're together. And it's not that we get together and we celebrate our differences as much as it is that we get together and we keep the main thing, the main thing. What's the main thing? It's the lordship of Christ, the glory of God. The gospel and the Holy Spirit then produces a remarkable unity. So this characterized this spirit-filled fellowship. You had curiosity, you had unity, and then you had generosity. Generosity also set them apart. They had a common experience of sharing their goods with one another. Verse 45 says they sold their possessions and belongings and they brought the proceeds and distributed them as anybody had a need. Now don't get the idea that this was some kind of early form of communism. (laughs) This has absolutely nothing to do with socialism. This is not some government-mandated relinquishing of personal property which so many in our country seem to be absolutely mesmerized by these days, as if it's worked so well in other countries around the world, where the government comes in and mandates that you give up your stuff to give to somebody else and that kind of... Listen, this isn't mandated from the top down. What you see here in the gospel or what you see in Acts chapter 2 is that which is produced from the inside out. It's the Spirit of God who's producing supernatural generosity in the hearts of the believers, so much so that if they saw someone who was their brother or sister who had a need, and they had some possessions that they could sell, they would sell those possessions to help meet the need in their brother or sister's life. That's what this is talking about here. 
doesn't mean that they all sold their possessions and lived from some kind of communal pot. It means that if there was a need, if anyone had a need, there was such generosity within the church that brothers and sisters went out of their way to help meet the need. Now, folks, let me tell you something. I can't tell you how many stories that I hear as the pastor of our church where this kind of thing happens. Without celebration, doesn't happen from the platform, but it happens as your life is bleeding into the lives of those around you in this fellowship. And needs are being met, and the body of Christ is simply being the body of Christ. Where does that come from? It comes from the life of God. It comes from the Holy Spirit who's at work in our hearts and lives as the church. So marks of a spirit-filled fellowship. You've got gospel establishment, necessary edification, common experience. One final thing that I want you to see is this, daily expansion. This spirit-filled fellowship was growing on a daily basis. Verse 46 says, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in one another's homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's the Spirit of God who's empowering their witness. It means as these believers were scattered about through their daily living, they were sharing the good news of what Jesus had done in their hearts and lives. They were sharing the gospel. They were leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. And the church was growing day by day. Notice the emphasis there, day by day. It's mentioned a couple of times here at the close of chapter 2. Day by day, just daily rhythms of life. These daily rhythms just characterize this spirit-filled fellowship. They're, They're not content to simply meet once a week for business as usual. No, they met daily, verse 46. They cared for each other daily. They won people to Christ daily. They search the scriptures daily. They increase in number daily. This is a day-to-day reality, a new way of life. And the reason is that Jesus was a living reality to them. His power and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ was at work through the presence of his spirit in the church. It was a kingdom community. That's what it was. It was an embassy of heaven. And as such, it gave the world a preview of the coming king. You know, when you go to the movies, isn't it amazing you go see a movie these days? There's 45 minutes of previews before the movie ever gets started. I'm tired before the movie even starts. I've got to go get a refill of popcorn before the movie even starts. But you know, those, those, those previews really are put together very well. Because those previews point to an upcoming attraction that the producer really wants you to see. The point of the preview is to whet our appetite for the upcoming attraction. Dr. Tony Evans says this. He says, someday a big show is coming to town. And it's called the kingdom of God. God the Father is the producer. The Holy Spirit is the director. Jesus Christ is the superstar, and it will be a worldwide production. But until then, God has left previews of coming attractions in the world. That's what the local church ought to be. We are his hot clips. 
God has left his church here to provide hot clips of the major production that is soon to come. But you know something? Listen. Unfortunately, what we're often putting forth to a watching world, it's more like a gag reel than it is a hot clip. Are you tracking with me? I won't, listen, by, by God's grace, I want to be a spirit-filled fellowship, don't you? I want to evaluate my life and where I fit in in the body of Christ and evaluate the ministry of our church with the criteria that's mentioned here at the close of Acts chapter 2.